Welcome to another episode of the Bandage Podcast, a weekly wrap-up of the most trending healthcare news. Each week, we'll discuss the latest in healthcare, health IT, and compliance. In this week's episode, we discuss chicken tainted with salmonella, healthcare issues in Arizona prisons, and health hazards for neighbors of a hoarder. Let's wrap things up. This is episode 110 for the week of November 8th. I'm Matt Moneypenny. And I'm Albert Battistelli. Before we get started, our diagnosis code of the week is J06.9 or acute upper respiratory infection, unspecified. Not much to say here. Nope, that's it. <laughs> <laughs> that's, a, that's very on the nose, very specific. Yep, it's not much you can do here. I uh, Not much of a talking point, pretty standard, uh, you know, diagnosis code. <laughs> I point uh, is to put a funny ICD-10 code or a unique one, and this one's pretty specific. So you know, once in a while you're going to get a specific one, but that's you fine. Just, Whatever. Yep. It is what it is. Anyways, let's get into the news. First up, we have contaminated Polish chickens. There were almost 50 reports in September and October this year about salmonella and poultry meat products from Poland on the RASFF portal. The majority were posted by Poland as part of its own official controls, but other countries filed reports as well. Almost half were judged not serious as the salmonella type involved was salmonella Newport, Derby, or Infantis. The European Union's regulation on fresh poultry meat only lists detection of salmonella intraditis, or typhimurium, as making a product non-compliant. Poland recently got approved to export poultry products to the United States following an assessment by the USDA's Food and Safety Inspection Service. The USDA does not consider salmonella infantitis an adulterant in chicken and allows the sale of poultry contaminated with it. ANSVSA has started intensified official controls at Cold Star's logistics sites of supermarkets, poultry repacking units, and poultry cutting establishments to reduce the risk to public health. It's not clear how long they will last. Samples will be collected to identify any possible batches of fresh poultry meat contaminated with these types of dangerous strains of salmonella. These will be analyzed in the network of accredited laboratories. Whoa. Whoa. Big mouthful. Yeah, lots of lots of names flying around there. Lots of versions of salmonella that I didn't know existed, so that's fun. Newport Derby and Newport Derby and fa- like these all sound like cigarette brands. Uh, it's like, ah, I got my pack of Derby, got my pack of Newports, but nope, that's just a type of salmonella, folks. No, it's just salmonella, turns out. And not even a bad type. That's just like a normal, like a, that's an okay, you know what, if your food has that kind of salmonella, you're good. No worry. <laughs> yeah, I agree. I mean, it's cool. I mean, salmonella outbreaks happen all the time, so this isn't sure. like a new thing. But it's interesting to see how the European Union... um you know, classify stuff and all that goes into what happens when there's a salmonella outbreak. Uh, yes. This is kind of like, you know, logistical stuff. It's not just like, hey, salmonella, stop eating some lettuce. Right. That's true. Interesting story, though. All right. Healthcare hell in prison. An incarcerated woman testified at a trial Monday over the quality of healthcare in Arizona prisons. Kendall Johnson detailed her repeated attempts to get help for what started as numbness in her feet and legs in 2017 and was diagnosed as multiple sclerosis in 2020. Johnson was the first witness at the trial over health care for more than 27,000 people incarcerated in Arizona's state-run prisons. 
A 37-year-old Johnson who is in a wheelchair and has a speech problem that makes it difficult at times to understand her said she can't brush her teeth, must wear diapers, had to until recently pay fellow prisoners to feed her because of neglect from staff at the prison, and typically spends her days laying in bed counting ceiling tiles. Lawyers for the prisoners are asking the judge to take over health care operations in state-run prisons, appoint an official to run medical and mental health services there, ensure prisons have enough health care workers, and reduce the use of isolation cells, including banning their use for prisoners under the age of 18 or those with serious mental illnesses. They said Arizona's prison health care operations are understaffed and poorly supervised, routinely deny access to some necessary medications, fail to provide adequate pain management for end-stage cancer patients and others, and don't meet the minimum standards for mental health care. Well, I'm interested in, you know, playing a little bit of devil's advocate here. I'm interested in what she's incarcerated for. Well, sure. You know, this is like a political thing, too. I mean, you know, the state of prisons and private, uh, privately owned prisons versus state owned prisons is like a thing that has been debated in presidential elections. So I don't want to get into the political aspect of it. But, you know, I mean, you got to make sure that you're there's human rights involved with people being in prison, even though they're prisoners, you're still, you know, they're still people. So certain, right. uh, you know, care needs to go into that. But also as well is state run prisons are, you know, funded by taxes. And right. a lot of times in some instances, I don't want to say a lot of times in some instances, there's been reasons where prisoners just want to go back to jail because they get better health care in jail as opposed to, you know, with our healthcare system. So sure. you know, it's a double-edged sword. Um, right. Interested. I mean, obviously her situation is bad. It's Arizona is, I think Arizona is a conservative state, right? It's more conservative. I think it's kind of like a purple state now. Yeah, I think you're right. So I'm going to be interested to see what happens there. Um, but, you know, who knows? If she was like a serial murderer, you know, a serial killer, she, you know, is it worth, does she deserve it? Maybe. Right. Maybe not. It just depends on where you're at. Well, yeah. And then it's this idea that like, you're, you know, you're stuck in prison. There's nothing you can do. You can't make any of your own choices for your health care anymore. So you're kind of just at the mercy of them. Right. So it's like, oh, I have a 10 year prison sentence, but if I get sick year one and nobody treats me and I die, it's more like a death sentence. That's true. Very good point. See? Like, so interesting indeed next up hoarding health hazards some residents of the koreatown neighborhood in los angeles said that they've had enough of what they consider a hoarding health hazard on their street one neighborhood home is surrounded by eight foot tall piles of debris from above a parked car buried in garbage and scrap metal can be seen now it's covering half of the front yard it's a complete eyesore said a next door neighbor the house has become a health concern for the whole street. Neighbors have complained to the city several times by now, but still nothing has happened. It's been already more than 10 years. One neighbor accuses it being longer than 10 years where this has been a problem, um, and they even have record of writing a letter to the mayor about it. They're fed up, believe it or not, and they're banding together to make sure this health hazard is cleaned up. Yeah. Hoarders, man. It's like an episode of Hoarders. Right. Well, it's interesting, too, because, like, I would want to know what their, like, 
evidence is. They're like, oh, it's a health hazard for us. Right. But they're just sort of seeing it. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, it, I feel like if it becomes a health hazard to other people, then it's probably worth investigating from a city standpoint. Right. But how do you know it's a health hazard to you? Is it just like, oh, I don't like looking at trash? Or is it like, I'm getting sick because your garbage is well i mean you know even beyond the health hazard part there's cities in the world where if you if your grass is too high you get a notice from from the from oh yeah for sure so like i don't know what the difference is between that and this this should probably be something that you know has some sort of fine associated with it it probably does but you know los angeles is a busy place and i can't imagine there's enough government in los angeles to keep track of all this yeah it just doesn't look like it's being enforced right they've got bigger fishes to fry as the saying goes that is how the saying goes you're right (laughs) thank you (laughs) hopefully those fishes don't have any types of salmonella yep hopefully not because then (laughs) it's going to be a whole story about poland (laughs) and newport Anyway, let's get to the next segment. B-R-E-A-C-H. Breach Patrol. It's a breach! All of the latest cybersecurity breaches. Welcome to Breach Patrol. We talk about the latest breaches all across the world. Uh, First up, Albert, what do we got? All right. This is a cloud-based breach. Despite increasing cyber attacks targeting data in the cloud, 83% of businesses are still failing to encrypt half of the sensitive data that they store in the cloud, raising even greater concerns as to the impact cyber criminals can have. 40% of organizations have experienced a cloud-based data breach in the past 12 months, according to a study conducted by 451 Research. According to the study, 21% of businesses host the majority of their sensitive data in the cloud. There are some common trends as to where companies turn when considering how to secure their cloud infrastructure with 33% reporting multi-factor authentication, MFA, as being a central part of their cybersecurity strategy. However, only 17% of those surveyed have encrypted more than half of the data they store in the cloud. This figure drops to 15% where organizations have adopted a multi-cloud approach. Ah, yet another um, study about the, uh, you know, cybersecurity world. These happen like all the time. And pretty much what they're finding is everyone's really bad at cybersecurity. Yeah. (laughs) That seems to be a recurring theme for sure. Whether it's encryption or password management or multi-factor authentication, you know, enforcement, it's it's just not, you know, things aren't going well. So another study that proves that you need to worry about your cybersecurity, but also no one else is doing it. So it's probably like, why should I? Well, what will happen? What will happen if they don't care about their cybersecurity, Albert? There's going to be a breach. Yep. <laughs> There's going to be a breach. And then we're going to end up talking about it on Breach Patrol, and that's not what you want. Yeah, you don't want us to talk about you. You don't want us to talk patrol. about you. Yeah. It's me. It's bad. <laughs> we make jokes. It's not good. Don't yeah. do it. No. That's going to be the sole, <laughs> the sole motivation why organizations yes. start being better with their cybersecurity is like, well, I don't want to be on breach patrol. I don't want to end up on breach patrol. Could you imagine? <laughs> I'd never financially recover. I could never financially recover. <laughs> Next up, crime against cancer. Current and former patients of the Las Vegas Cancer Center may have had their personal information exposed to bad actors after a ransomware attack. 
Las Vegas Cancer Center, or LVCC, administrators confirmed hackers accessed encrypted data on the center's server over Labor Day weekend and stated the security breach was discovered on September 7th when staff returned after the holiday. Although LVCC server and computers are protected by firewall and multiple malware defense systems, hackers may have been able to access patient names, addresses, dates of birth, social security numbers, medical records, and insurance information as a result of the breach. However, LVCC claims all patient data was stored in a proprietary format and was likely not usable by hackers. Since they don't know which records may have been accessed, administrators advise anyone who has ever been an LVCC patient to closely monitor their credit activity and insurance for suspicious activity. Um, you know, pretty standard stuff here. Yeah, there it is. There's just an ongoing pattern where every week it's like ransomware attack, you probably lost all of your information to these hackers. Right. Make sure you check your credit history. Yep. They provide some free monitoring or. Yeah, no free monitoring here. That's the one thing. No, that that's true. Do. In the good, in in better situations, they provide the free monitoring to the people affected. But Come on, LVCC. What are you right. doing? Credit uh, monitoring, please. Jeez Louise. How hard is it, Albert? You know, how hard? It, you know. It can't be that hard, or we wouldn't be sitting here talking about how to do it. Like it's true, it's very true. Um, at this point, I feel like everyone should just. I feel like credit, the credit companies, you know, the credit overlords of the world. Sure, sure, um, sure. They should just make it easier to freeze credit and also open credit because it's not easy. No, because they don't want you to do it, but. Right. They should want you to do it because otherwise they're going to have to deal with the insurance claims and all that stuff that come with credit, like losing your credit. So Yeah, that's true. Losing your identity. So I don't know. It's a trade-off. I feel like something's going to have to be happening here pretty soon. Hopefully. All right. State security flaw. The state of Missouri signed a contract last week with Identity Theft Guard Solutions, also known as ID Experts. The move comes after a post-dispatch reporter found a flaw that potentially exposed the social security numbers of an estimated 100,000 Missouri teachers. The contract does not specify if ID experts will focus on that flaw, but it does say it would cost taxpayers about $4.5 million to notify the teachers of the potential breach and provide them with the credit monitoring services. After the problem was first reported, Governor Mike Parson accused the Post-Dispatch of hacking into the Department of Elementary and Secondary Education's website, which he called a crime and called for a criminal investigation. So wait. Yeah, I, no. I, Mike I'm very Parson, curious. the governor of Missouri, is accusing a... Newspaper. Newspaper, a, pre, a media outlet about... Right breaching an organization that is the department of elementary and secondary education right so the newspaper must have been doing report like investigative reporting i mean that's... right and so they tried to access the website for the department of Ed whatever and managed to and, and then reported it. on it like hey look how weak their security is and the governor's like well you hacked our website you should be punished <laughs> Yeah, that's not the right way to think about that. <laughs> no, no. The right way would be to, like, fix it. Yeah, right. That, the right way would be like, oh, thank you, like, Post-Dispatch. No. Yeah. Right. You could be like, no, you. This is your fault. It's like, <laughs> uh, well, we screwed up, and thank God we had this journalist 
investigate this because really they're just doing a white hack, a white hat hacking technique, which is common. People will be right. like, people who are into white hack hacking will be like, Hey, I got into your account. Here's proof of that. I can help you secure it by right. my services. But in this case, the press isn't going to do that. So they're just right. like, going to write about this. Right. Which I'm sure is embarrassing for the school like system or sure. for the department. I'm sure it's like, oh man, this is like, look how weak their security is. But like, you don't go around and like attack the person who pointed out your flaw. No, like yeah. you go ahead and you like beef up for it. Like right. fix yeah, it. Yeah, that's silly. <laughs> yeah. Oh, well. And that's it for this week's wrap up of your weekly healthcare news. I'm Matt Moneypenny. And I'm Albert Pedestelli. And we'll see you next week. Thank you for listening to the Bandage Podcast produced by eTactics.